I'm Michael Shoulder on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations. I'd say my most fun job is still working on the search for life. And myself and my team, we're just trying to be ready for when it comes. We want to find a planet just like Earth. Sarah Seeger, astrophysicist, MIT professor, winner of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, has been pursuing the search for Earth-like planets outside our solar system since she was a graduate student two decades ago, at a time when so many people in her field thought her search would be futile. I got a lot of notes. <laughs> when I started working on the field, constantly, over and over again, people would say no, actually. Seeger did not take no for an answer. And now that thousands of so-called exoplanets have been discovered, Seeger is working to create technology that might someday identify one whose atmosphere is just right for life. We do have an incredible concept. It's mind-boggling. How Sarah Seeger became a leading force in her field has also given her insights into how to be the best mother she can be. And I feel like it's my free time doing nothing that actually is what made me successful today. It wasn't taking another math class, it wasn't going to math camp, it wasn't being overscheduled. It was actually doing nothing that was so important to creativity. Professor Sarah Seeger of MIT, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Hi, good morning. My first question to you, are you insanely curious? No, oh, uh, sometimes. I'm sometimes insanely curious. What are you insanely curious about as opposed to just merely curious? Well, I'm insanely curious about whether there's life in the universe. And really not so much whether life is out there, but if we actually have a way to find it. That's my main thing I'm, I'm insanely curious about. And when did that curiosity get triggered? What triggered it? Well, what triggered it for me was just the night sky, being able to look up at the stars and just to wonder what's out there. And when did you first start looking up at the night sky like that and really wondering in a way that drove you? I don't think it's a sudden experience. It's more of a gradual effect. Like, I think many children notice the moon. You know, if they look up and they see the moon, it's just there. And I remember being a small child and seeing the moon just following me. And I couldn't understand, no matter how far we drove or where we turned or which way we went, the moon would just stay following me. And so just that memory has stuck with me. Later on, I remember going on my first camping trip. And I woke up in the middle of the night and went outside to look around. And wow, I just had looked up and I just I couldn't believe it. There's just so many stars. Like, I'd never imagined this. Why hadn't anyone told me about this? And it was just so striking. But, you know, 10-year-olds, they just don't focus on stuff for very long. So I think I forgot all about it. And then all through my life, it just kind of came back to me gradually until one day I realized that I could be an astronomer for a job. And that was a great day. What day was that? And, and do you remember how old you were? Yeah, I was about 16 years old. And I lived in the inner city in Toronto, Canada. And there was an open house at my local university where I ended up attending. And I just had seen signs for it. So I went there by myself, went up the elevator. I got to this little table where professors were handing out pamphlets. <laughs> and I just, I honestly had no idea that you could do this for a job. This was insane. I just, I couldn't believe you could just be an astronomer for a job. So I do remember it very clearly. 
I remember running home to tell my dad about this, how great this was. Like, did he know about this? Like, why hadn't we known about these jobs? And he was livid. He was so angry with me. He gave me like one of the biggest, harshest lectures I ever got in my life. The only part of the, <laughs> the lecture I remember was him saying, Sarah, you have to be able to get a job and support yourself and not rely on any man. And he didn't think I could get a job as an astronomer because we didn't know, like, what does an astronomer do? He was so mad at me. He told me I couldn't do it. And I had to go to school and be a doctor. Or I could be a lawyer. And those were the only jobs he knew about that he thought were stable and well-paying. It's interesting because in general, was he an encouraging father? Extremely encouraging. He encouraged me to be educated and he thought I should be very well-cultured. So we went to art galleries, you know, we went to music concerts and... You know, he gave me books on science, but he didn't mean for it to be a job. He meant, you know, and as a parent myself now, I realize that what parents ultimately, the goal is to get your kid out there in the real world, being able to support themselves, to have a job, to be employable, perhaps to have a family of their own someday. And he didn't see that <laughs> vision compatible with, with being an astronomer. And then after that, every weekend, because I stayed with my dad on weekends, he would ask me, so what does the physicist do? So from his initial reluctance and opposition, he decided to start at least keeping his ears open and listening. That's right, right. And it helped, I think, he had a girlfriend eventually who was a nuclear physicist. And she had had her PhD in nuclear physics, and she worked at our local nuclear power plant. And so there was an example of someone who had gone to school and studied physics and got a PhD, and they had a job that paid and was stable. I think that probably reassured him <laughs> a bit. So it started with you dreaming, looking up in the sky, seeing all those lights in the sky. And yet the more I read about your work, the more we discover that, you know, as a journalist, the metaphor for us is we shine a light on something to see the truth, right? But in your right. field, for your journey of discovery, light is often the enemy. You're looking at what you can find in the darkness. Explain that to me. Well, it's yes and no. So half of what I hope to do, light is a problem <laughs> because we're trying to see exoplanets. And in particular, we want to find a planet just like Earth. But our Earth is very small, very low mass, and extremely faint compared to our sun. So I want you to imagine staring up at the sky with a powerful telescope. It would be impossible to see a planet like Earth, not because the Earth itself is so faint, but because it would be right next to a big, giant extremely bright sun. And in fact, our sun is 10 billion times brighter than our Earth at visible wavelengths where we can see. So we've got to block out that starlight to 10 billion times. And that's why sometimes we do think light is our enemy, because all that light is just, wow. Think for a moment what 10 billion means. It's hard. <laughs> you know, your whole field is hard for anybody to get their arms around because you're talking about 10 billion times more. When we talk about light years, these are very tough concepts to really internalize. Yeah, it's really hard. Everything's far away. It's incredible that we can get the information we can. And you, you've started inventing some things in order to get that, in a sense, light pollution for your purposes out of the way. And so describe to me, and that, and that shows like so much independence and self-reliance. I want you to tell me about this device that you've created that you hope one day will be sent out into space to sort of minimize the light pollution. Well, we do have an incredible concept. It's mind-boggling. And that concept is a giant screen that will have a spacecraft attached to it. 
and that will formation fly with a telescope. And that screen will align just perfectly with the telescope to block out the starlight in such a way that we can see any orbiting planets around the star. Now this starshade, as it's called, is very specially shaped. It looks like a flower. It's not a circle, it's not a square. And the reason is because the starlight itself can act like a wave and it will diffract, it will bend around the edges of the screen. And if it were to be a circle, it's analogous to if you were to drop a pebble in a pond and see ripples. And those ripples would just ruin your image. Imagine having like bright circles all around where you're trying to find planets. But the very special shape of the starshade, it's a flower shape, this starshade, the light will interact with itself and almost cancel itself out. It would be akin to dropping the pebble in the pond and having the water all around where the pebble dropped be perfectly smooth, but all the ripples would be pushed to the outside. So the starshade is a breathtaking concept. I don't get credit for inventing it, unfortunately. That credit goes to Lyman Spitzer back from the 19, I want to say 50s or 60s when they were thinking about the Hubble Space Telescope. And every decade or so, the concept has been revisited. Until today, many decades after it was first conceived, we're actually ready. We have the technology, we know what we're doing. As long as we can get money, we're confident we can build the starshade and make it work. Which leads me to a concept, because you, know, you are looking for this other Earth somewhere out there. You believe it exists. You said, I know I'm not going to live to see people travel to an exoplanet, but I can still make the maps, which comes back to our parenting, this idea of delayed gratification. So before we get to the true Earth twin, astronomers, including myself, are on a, we call it, race to the bottom. So although the Earth is, for me, the Holy Grail, we have a whole other thing we're doing now. And in this case, light is our friend. What we're doing is we're looking for exoplanets that orbit small stars. And these small dim stars have to be specially aligned with the planet so that the planet goes in front of the star as seen from the telescope. And what we do is we monitor a field of stars, either from the ground or with the famous Kepler Space Telescope. We monitor a lot of stars, either thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of stars at a time. And literally, it's like taking a picture of the sky every few seconds or minutes or 30 minutes. And we literally just look for the brightness of the star as a function of time. And we look for a tiny drop in brightness as the planet goes in front of the star. Actually, that's a sign of a planet. And there's many kind of complications to how we eventually get it to be a planet. But this transiting nature, the special alignment that some planets and their stars have with respect to us here, it's phenomenal because we're actually able to study the planet atmospheres that way and to see what's in them. And if the planets might have water vapor and they might have other gases that make it possible for life to survive on that planet. And even gases in the atmosphere that don't belong that might be attributed to life. So I just want to take a second to explain to you how this works. That's something I did invent, actually. And that is when the planet goes in front of the star, some of the starlight shines through the planet atmosphere. Just like shining a flashlight through a fog, the person on the other side of the fog would see some light make it through and some light not make it through. And by seeing which part of the starlight makes it through the planet atmosphere and which doesn't, we can piece together what kind of molecules are in the planet atmosphere absorbing the starlight. So our whole thrust right now is to find a pool of small planets transiting small stars, and we're going to use a big space telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope that's going to launch in about a year and a half, and we're going to look at the atmospheres of these small worlds. That's fascinating to me, and basically you're looking for 
the right mix of, I guess, gases that would make life possible. Is that correct? That's correct. We're getting pictures, like every five seconds, you're just flashing pictures, flashing pictures of this huge, vast space. I guess computers do the work. I mean, it seems to me like there just could never be enough people in the field to nail this. Well, actually, the computers are doing the work, and people are also doing the work. And this is to find planets. When we fault their atmospheres, it's a separate effort where we just focus on one star and planet system at a time. But believe it or not, people do look through these light curves. And there's actually a website called Zooniverse. Zoo, inverse, like as if universe, Zooniverse. Mm -hmm. And there are many projects where they have the data organized in such a way that you, your friends, your family could look through the data and look for planets or look for other things. And so, in fact, ironically, although computers do the work for us, we always like to have humans try to look at the data as well. And once in a while, people do find something we haven't seen before because our computer programs, they'll only find what we tell them to find. So this is an area that you are responsible for creating, for inventing. Part of this area. Let me ask you, I would imagine when you started exploring this part of the area, you must have gotten some no's that you had to just ignore or get past. I got a lot of no's. <laughs> when I started working on the field, exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than the sun, the ones orbiting sun-like stars were first discovered. And a lot of people didn't believe they were really planets. I mean, people have searched for planets for decades. And it's our nature as scientists to be skeptical. And for many different reasons, people didn't believe in them. And there I was starting to work on their atmospheres, what they might look like, how to detect them. And yeah, people just, they didn't believe the planets were there. When they did believe the planets were real, they didn't believe we'd ever be able to discover and study their atmospheres. And one of the things I worked on initially was the fact that these atmospheres would have clouds in them. I was working on the hottest planets, planets that are thousands of degrees Kelvin, and they orbit the star very closely, and they're very hot. And I remember a person on my thesis committee, my PhD thesis committee, he had taken my advisor aside, apparently, and said, well, why? Like, why is she studying clouds in these atmospheres? They're never going to be measured. And now, in fact, people do entire PhD thesis on exoplanet clouds in their atmospheres. But yes, constantly, over and over again, people would say no, actually. You don't seem to be like an I told you so kind of person. Have you ever gone back to that thesis advisor and just said, I just wanted to have a little conversation with you about what's transpired? No, no. I don't do that. By the way, that wasn't the advisor. That was another professor on my committee. I didn't. In fact, one time I had interviewed at a university, a very famous one, for a faculty job. And at the time, exoplanets was a very shaky field. And they just told me, no, you know, we can't hire you. You know, these are people who would drill cores into Earth and hold material in their hands that they could study in their machines. They weren't comfortable with this. There was one transiting planet at the time. Now we have several thousand transiting planets, planets that go in front of the star and cause a tiny drop in brightness. And there was one. And they said, look, this atmosphere method that you invented, it was successful one time. We think this is a one object, one method success. We don't think there's going to be more transiting planets. Just not going to work out. And so I remember going back to that university about a decade later and giving a talk. And one of those same people who was so adamantly against the field, I was meeting with him one-on-one. -on -one, and he said to me, you know, I always knew this field was going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought to myself, I have to get out of here. And let me ask you, how long did it take you to sort of convince 
a critical mass of people? I mean, obviously you had to produce results. How long did it take you laboring to prove that it wasn't just a one-shot wonder? I think the field proved itself because it only took a few initial successes for people to want to flood into the field and for people who could, who had time or money, mostly younger people, students and postdocs who had some intellectual freedom who wanted to do it. And the field itself was like a giant rolling avalanche, if you will. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger because a lot of people went into it and proved things. And by the way, in science, it's usually more helpful if other people prove your ideas because, you know, you can always prove your own case over and over again. But the more people that want to do it, the more people that are successful, that's when the field takes off. This is related to what you're saying. You said in a great profile of you, I think it was the one from the New York Times, this field was built by rogue pioneers. You wouldn't have gotten into this if you weren't tough and belligerent and willing to take big risks and have high standards. So would you describe yourself as tough and belligerent? And where did that come from? Well, I wouldn't necessarily call myself belligerent, but yeah, I just think I was born that way. I had the evil stepfather, by the way, which I can't get into the details on the podcast, but I think that's really a lot of why I'm so resilient and tough. I think I was just born that way. I read this fascinating article once in the New York Times, and it said that character traits stay with a family for up to 10 generations. And this article actually was specifically focused on those descendants, one, two, three, four, you know, five generations of that mass of people who came from Europe through Ellis Island in the early 1900s, and they came to America. And my family was among those. My great-grandparents were in their early 20s. They lived in Ukraine, and they were, you know, like a persecuted, very super poor people. And you know what? They left everything. They were newly married. They knew they were never going to see their family again. They went on this boat. They are probably super seasick the whole time. As legend has it, somehow, I don't know if this is true, but that my grandfather was conceived on the voyage, and they gave birth to him in Canada in 1911. And so think about those people. They're way more brave and tough and resilient than any of us. But the thought is that, you know, these people came here and left everything and were very brave and they gave birth and the descendants eventually maintained some of those characteristics. So that's my own story of how I see myself. And now you're a parent and presumably raising your children in much greater comfort than your great-grandparents and, gra- and grandparents. Yes, right. and, yes, yeah. and we all worry. Parents in we your position and my position. Yeah, we worry. And, and, of course, there's this relatively new phenomenon, over-parenting. And, in fact, I interviewed somebody who wrote a great book, How to Raise an Adult. She was the former dean of freshmen at Stanford University, uh, Julie Lithcott-Hames. And she said she is noticing that an increasing number of students coming into college no longer have the same degree of wherewithal to be independent and solve problems on their own. And I have to imagine that, especially given the analysis you just gave me of where you might have gotten your resilience and toughness from, given that you must be sensitive to that as a parent. I am, Mm -hmm. definitely. Are there things you do as a parent designed to counteract that and to keep your kids resilient? There are, actually. But before I get to my own children, we're seeing a tremendously growing problem at the university level, exactly as you've described. And we see people here who, okay, they're in their 20s, early 20s or, you know, very late teens, and they've never had a major personal problem to solve on their own. I don't know about you, but I remember several times in my childhood where I got in super big trouble for my parents or something awful happened and I, like, just cried for two whole days. I got in super big trouble for stuff. 
or you maybe had a crush on someone and you, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you got your spirit absolutely crushed. Like we're not seeing people solving this kind of personal tragedy or did you ever get lost in the city? You know, stuff like that would happen to me. And, you know, you have to figure out how to navigate on your own. But because those kids didn't have that, now they've grown up, they're young adults, they go to university. Wow, first time away from home, never solved a crisis, never had a crisis. And they get here and it really derails them. I do see it among my students and it's very concerning. They always get it back together though, like the ones I know. They always get it back together. And it's sort of known here that it's not going to be their grades or their physics ability or their computer programming ability. It's going to be like they get a boyfriend or a girlfriend and break up with them. It's some problem that they have or they have a major falling out with their parents for the first time or they just get isolated and depressed and can't navigate bad grades. So it's always something like that, but they usually get through it by the end. It's just that this stuff's supposed to happen while you're at home in high school. It's not supposed to happen while you're at university. And that phrase you used, you have to figure out how to navigate on your own. So there's this wonderful book that you were profiled in, Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars by Lee Billings. And he describes this canoe trip you took into what part of Canada was it again? Well, it's now called Nunavut. It's the Northwest Territories, and it's like the eastern part of the Northwest Territories. And I was fascinated by the fact that here you were in the wilderness, and your job was, is it pronounced portage or portage? Well, in Canada, we pronounce it portage, and here in the U.S., they say portage. So portage, which is carrying the canoe over those areas of dry land before you get to the next body of water, and you said you did it maybe 15 times a day into this journey into the wilderness. And I have to think that, you know, my God, learning how to navigate on your own and be resilient, there must be some connection between that and having to navigate your journey into the stars. Well, there's certainly the spirit of adventure, the willing to take risks, and a mental toughness that goes with the job, both with wilderness exploring and with thinking about space and trying to think of new ideas and willing to take a risk on working them out. And let me ask you that, trying to think of new ideas, how much of that is imagination, pure imagination, versus, I just discovered this thing and that might lead to something else? How much do you just take a step back and just use your imagination and say, I'm going to go with this? I'm going to have to think about that one because I have less and less time that I I allow myself to use my imagination. So I'm going to have to put that on my list of things to do, which is not a very imaginative process. But I do want to get back to the concept of children and how we raise them. And just one thought I want to leave with you is, okay, when I was in high school, it was actually a breeze for me, which is sort of both good and bad. I had a lot of free time. And I remember just constantly daydreaming. Today, one of the major problems we see is kids are overscheduled. You know, after school, they might have a math class, special math, or sports every day, or they have no time to do nothing. And we see kids now, like elementary school age, who are like, they don't know what to do when they have free time. And I feel like it's my free time doing nothing that actually is what made me successful today. It wasn't taking another math class, wasn't going to math camp, it wasn't being overscheduled. It was actually doing nothing that was so important to creativity. And so, as a parent... Have you built in time? Because you really sort of have to schedule free time, doing nothing time. Tell me as much as you'd like to about your kids. Well, until about two years ago, we had nothing. We didn't do anything. You know, I wanted them to each choose a sport, a language, and an instrument, but we weren't really even doing that. We just didn't have any plans. They just played when they were really little. One of them actually did math for fun. Like, that was what he did when he was between, let's say, age 3 and 10. And they played with trains. They, like, did Lego. Like, they didn't 
initially have TV, but they didn't really have a schedule. They didn't have stuff to do. And then when they got older, they wanted it. One of them wanted to join club soccer, and then they wanted to do soccer, and the other wanted to do tennis, and they actually wanted to be busy doing things. So we do do a few things now, actually. But I think the most important thing I try to do for them, and it's ironic that we try to do it now, whereas in the past, parents didn't pay that much attention and stuff just happened, is I try to leave them on their own when they have a problem. Like one of them, unfortunately, broke his ankle, and he had to get pins, and he's been immobilized for a while. And like his friends stopped coming over because they're all very active. They play soccer. That's all they would do when they came over. And now he can't really do anything. And so now what's he supposed to do? I'm like, oh, well, I mean, I'll do some stuff with you, but I'm not going to go overboard and working everything out and paving it away for you. It's, it's your problem. You've broken your ankle. I'm very sorry. It's actually a huge deal for us for him to have a broken ankle because he's very athletic and he's usually playing sports. But, you know, we try not to go overboard on it. So you see, even though obviously as a parent you'd rather not have him suffering there from a broken ankle, but you do see the value of it and the opportunity of, as some people have called it, sitting with the discomfort. Well, I've seen a resilience in him that I didn't know about. And I don't want anyone else to break a bone. I don't want him to break any more bones, but it's like exercising a muscle, right? (laughs) Like, he knows he's resilient now. He's had to be resilient. He would say to me at the very beginning, well, it's 100 days to heal. That's a long time for a kid. And, you know, he just only was depressed one day out of the whole time so far. He just tries to be positive and say, you know, every day's going to be better. Tries to figure out the plus side of, of this. Actually, there's really not too many plus sides, but he has got to spend a lot more time with me. Let me ask you this. Given how absorbed you are in your work, and yet at the same time, it sounds like equally absorbed with your parenting, Do you talk about your work to your kids, and how do you talk about the field of exoplanets to an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old and get them really excited? Well, I don't really try to push it on them. I think a lot of it just comes by osmosis. Like when the Kepler Space Telescope launched, we went to the launch. The children were very little, only age three and five, but they'd be playing at the beach. Us parents would be shop-talking. We were in Florida, and at Cape Canaveral, we could see in the distance, we could see the rocket, the Delta rocket that was carrying Kepler. And so somehow, I don't know how it happened. We didn't talk to them. They're age three and five. But they heard the parents talking about it. And then we get home, and not too long after that, he's throwing like a paper airplane in the air. This is Kepler. It's going to find Earths. (laughs) I mean, I don't know where you got that from. I'm fascinated that you also have this, and it probably makes sense given how you approach your work, but you have this entrepreneurial spirit. So I read about three different companies that you're involved in, and a couple of them are just so fascinating to me. And I looked this one up on its website, Planetary Resources, Inc. And the whole idea is to be able to mine valuable minerals from asteroids, which the website refers to as fuel stations for outer space. Tell me about that. I mean, it sounds like science fiction, but there's money behind it, and there's technology being developed. Why is that so important? Well, I'll start with my connection to the whole asteroid mining business, and that is one of the projects I've been running is a small, tiny space telescope. It's basically the size of two loaves of bread side by side. Now, these small satellites will get pushed around easily by external forces and even by their own reaction wheels, three wheels that will point the telescope. They're not perfect. They kind of leave a leftover jitter in the telescope. I'm sorry, did you invent this kind of nano-satellite? I didn't invent it, but there's this technology that I'm getting to that we were able to figure out here at MIT in Draper Lab, and we were able to figure out how to point 
a very small satellite very precisely. And this actually got the attention of planetary resources because what they imagine is that they're going to be out near an asteroid with a spacecraft and they have to communicate back to Earth. But on Earth, all the big radio dishes are controlled by NASA, so they need their own communication system. And the best way to communicate, although it's very hard, is not at radio wavelengths. It's actually at visible wavelengths because there's more information that you can squeeze into a laser than into a radio wave. And so they were really interested because if you want to send a laser beam back to Earth, you're going to have to point it very precisely. So I started to get involved with planetary resources. And we did do some transfer of information. We worked together for a while. And I've been on their board of advisors. But I do support that entrepreneurial spirit because everything has to start somewhere. We know a lot. We know how to get to an asteroid. We know how to get material from an asteroid. There's a lot of things we know how to do, but we just don't know how to do them efficiently and profitably. When you say we know, have we ever done it before? Yes, we have. We've flown by a bunch of asteroids. Um, we've orbited an asteroid. The Japanese have reached down and scooped up some material from an asteroid. NASA has, last September, launched OSIRIS-REx, a mission that's heading to an asteroid. It's going to take a couple of years to get there. It's going to orbit the asteroid for a while, and it's going to get very, very close and reach down and grab some material and bring that material back to Earth. So we do. We do. Is there material in these asteroids that might help us reduce our dependence on mining the Earth? There's two things. One is there are certain very precious metals, like platinum, gold, and related, that could be in big concentrations in asteroids. On Earth, we have pockets of them, but on the large part, most of them had sunk to the interior of Earth. So the thought is that they're out there just waiting for us to get. The other ambitious part of asteroid mining is what you already mentioned, that they'd be like a gas station. Because every time we go to space, it's so expensive. We have to bring everything with us, right? And so it's just too much. You can't bring everything. If you could get materials along the way, that would be ideal. In terms of finding another Earth-like planet, do you think that could happen in your lifetime, or are you just, uh, as you said, mapping it out for future generations? Well, it depends what you want to call Earth-like. Right now, we have Earth-sized planets. A couple weeks ago, there was a big announcement of seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a very cold, very dim star called TRAPPIST-1. Those could be planets with water and atmospheres. They're not very Earth-like, though but they may have ability to support life, and that would be incredible. So actually, this discovery could be right around the corner. To find the true Earth twin, though, that, that one's a long way off. So let me ask you, because very often you know, in exploration, especially in space exploration, there's this sort of collateral knowledge that people gather. And so my fantasy headline is, Professor Sarah Seeger, in her quest to find another Earth, figures out how to save our own. Have you learned anything in your exploration of space that might help us with these urgent questions we're dealing with now, including climate change? You know, one thing that I've learned is that it's a people problem more than a scientific problem at the moment. And that's what's so challenging. It's a people problem, and yet one of the hopes is that we might be able to figure out new technologies. And that's where I think of your, what's it called again, the shade? The star shade. Well, people have toyed with many ideas, blocking out some of the sunlight for Earth, people have talked about geoengineering, you know, making clouds to block some sunlight. So there are a lot of ideas out there, but the Earth is a very complex system, and nobody's really willing to experiment with it. You know Brian Greene, I imagine. Have you seen his book, Icarus at the Edge of Time, which is a wonderful book for kids and adults? Actually, no, I haven't seen it. 
he wants to send a different scientific message because Icarus in the Greek myth, with his wax wings, he flies too close to the sun and his wings melt and he dies. In this case, Icarus is a young boy and he's on this intergalactic mission where they have a destination, but it's going to take multiple generations. And so Icarus was basically born and raised on the ship. An announcement comes over the speaker on their spaceship. They say, we're unexpectedly approaching a black hole. Everybody stay inside. This kid, Icarus, he says he's crafted this spaceship that can get him just to the edge of that black hole. And he defies orders and he takes it out and he takes it to the edge of the black hole. And then he doesn't realize it, but he gets sucked into the black hole and winds up 10,000 years in the future. This idea of space travel and the risks of space travel, would you get on a ship and take a multi-generational journey if it meant you might be able to meet up with intelligent life out there somewhere? Wow, what a question. I'm not sure. (laughs) I mean, even though I consider myself very adventurous, I don't feel like I want to go out into space away from our home planet. It's just too out there. As much of an adventurer as you are, do you believe that there is not just life, but intelligent life somewhere out there? I absolutely believe there is intelligent life somewhere out there. I'm not convinced that it's near enough for us to meet up with and communicate with at the moment. On the one hand, you have this real sense of urgency, if I'm not misreading you, to get as much meaningful work done as you possibly can in your quest to find this other Earth, to abbreviate it. You also believe, I've read, in the power of sleep, which in a sense is a corollary of this, using your imagination, giving yourself some space. So do you sleep well? Very well. And tell me how sleep connects with the power of your work. What people don't always understand is that with a great sleep and you're well-rested, your performance is so much better. And so I want you to imagine for a moment Olympic athletes. They're treating their bodies like a machine. They're eating well, they're sleeping well, and they have to do everything it takes. And for me, like if I don't get a good sleep, I basically cannot get any work done. Just being well-rested, I can just very efficiently and clearly cut through the clutter in my head and just get things done. But I have to imagine a lot of your colleagues, because I know in high-achieving areas, people sort of use it as a mark of pride that, oh, I'm so burned out. I've been working so hard. I just ignore that. (laughs) But one thing is, I did have a period of about a year or two, I was only sleeping for four hours. And there's a theory that as long as you sleep an integer number of sleep cycles, you'll feel fine. You know how like if you're woken up by an alarm and then you feel very tired as opposed to if you wake up naturally? So the thought is if you can wake up naturally after that four-hour sleep cycle, you'll be fine. So I did that for quite a while. But the thing is that now, I remember nothing from that time period. I think during sleep, whatever functions are supposed to be happening didn't happen, and I just don't remember anything now. Last question, what are you looking to achieve over the coming weeks and months? Well, one of my main roles at the moment is on the TESS mission. It's an MIT-led NASA mission called Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. TESS has got four glorified telephoto lenses. It's going to um, look at a strip of the sky of 90 by 24 degrees, and march around the sky doing one hemisphere first and the next hemisphere. And so I'm actually playing a leading role in organizing that mission, the science return from the mission, and that's one of my main jobs. I'd say my most fun job, though, is still working on the search for life. And myself and my team, we're just trying to be ready for when it comes. It will take a long time for us to figure out what gases could indicate that life is present, what other gases do we need to corroborate 
or refute the hypothesis that a gas we found could mean there's life on another world. Well, Professor Sarah Seeger from MIT, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thanks so much, Michael. Here's a brief but important postscript to this episode. Since that conversation with Sarah Seeger, I've begun a Wavemaker series on sexual harassment. So I circled back with Professor Seeger this week to ask her whether, if in her male-dominated field, she had experienced harassment. And this is part of her response. People don't usually mess with me, and I haven't experienced overt sexual harassment beyond the usual continuous subconscious bias against women. And here's the observation that really struck me. She says, I was fortunate to gravitate towards, purposefully perhaps, mentors who had grown-up daughters who want smart young women like their daughters to succeed. I hope you'll share that with your sons and daughters and your fellow parents and any young adults who are searching for mentors in their professional journeys. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. In the next episode, I plan to continue my series featuring pioneers in the field of sexual harassment. They will share original insights and stories that breaking news coverage overlooks. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on the Apple Podcast app or Podbean, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer, and then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.